But I just want to, again, explain uh, briefly a little bit of the burden behind this. Um, sometimes when we are given one opportunity, it leads to others, right? Uh, that's somehow some way that the Lord works sometimes with us. And I was given an opportunity to teach a Sunday school on how to study the Bible. And God used that in my own life to um, greatly help my Bible reading and to give me a greater desire to be in the Word and to help me learn some principles uh, of Bible study. I am not up here as an expert uh, on inductive Bible study at all, right? This is kind of a new thing to me, uh, but I've really appreciated what I've learned. Thank you. So I want to pass along some of the blessings that have come to me uh, through this and then get out of the way <laughs> so that we can look at the Word of God together. This week we're going to be looking at the second step of interpretation. So let's take a look at the introduction together. Uh, if you have a white sheet, we're going to be taking some notes on there and following along. An inductive Bible study approach will encourage us to approach the scriptures with freshness and humility as we adopt the best habits of careful readers and thinkers. Last week, we saw that the three phases of inductive Bible study are observation, interpretation, and application. This evening, we will focus on the middle step in which we use the details and connections seen in the observation step to answer the question, what does this passage mean? Um, I think on your sheet, we're starting with Roman numeral three. I'm not sure why. I think maybe it's a continuation of, uh, from what we had last week, but uh, just ignore that. Uh, remember, observation is that step of asking, what does the text say? What does it say? Um, a great Bible um, interpreter, Ed Robinson, said that this is the excavation step. Excavation, where kind of you build a hole for the building, right? And you prepare the foundation for the building. So when we're doing our observation and asking questions of the text, it's like preparing the foundation for the building. And interpretation is that next step of actually erecting a building on the foundation. And that foundation is so critical to this next step. It's a good reminder of how careful we ought to be in our observation because the quality of our interpretation is directly linked to that. So I want to share with you tonight just seven principles about how we can go about good Bible interpretation. And uh, as we do that, we are seeking what does this passage mean, right? The first one is let context rule. Let context rule. That's your first blank. I've appreciated the uh, writing of a man named Bruce Hurt, who is affiliated with an organization called Precept Austin. He has compiled a lot of good observations about Bible interpretation, about inductive Bible studies. And he's paraphrased some of them and made them really helpful. I just want to share what he says about context here. Uh, quote, the English word context is derived from com, C-O-M, which means with, and texere, T-E-X-E-R-E, -E, which is to weave or braid. You hear textile written into that word, same word, right? To weave or braid, and thus means woven together. What happens when you remove a piece of thread from a garment? It doesn't function well. It does not fulfill the weaver's intended purpose. 
It was woven together with other threads in order to make a garment, even as a specific biblical passage is woven together with other verses to make a context. And he goes on to say, anytime we break into the middle of a book or a chapter or a paragraph, we need to look at the surrounding context. When you interpret scripture, whether it's a single word, a phrase, a paragraph, or a verse, you must always consider the scripture in light of the surrounding verses, chapters of the book in which it's written, and finally, the context of the entire Bible. That's all context. So sometimes it's helpful to picture this, uh, like a target with the surrounding rings around the bullseye. And we start with our word or with our phrase or verse, and we go up from there to the, the paragraph level, right? And then the paragraph level to the chapter level, and then to the book. And we need to understand the purpose of the book. Why was it written? And uh, then also to the last uh, ring of that target, which would be the Bible itself. What's the big story of the Bible, and how does this, this part that I'm interpreting fit in with the story of the whole Bible? So he said, your, your interpretation should never contradict the context of the book, chapter, or paragraph you are studying. If you ignore context, the accuracy of your interpretation will suffer and may even be spiritually dangerous. Remember that a text taken out of context can become a pretext. You guys are familiar with that quote as well. Pretext is a false assumption, right? The second principle of good interpretation is let scripture interpret scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture. Some of you may have guessed that already and filled in the blanks. I know how you operate. <laughs> uh, he goes on to say about this, scripture is always the best commentary on itself. The beauty of using scripture to interpret scripture is that when the Bible answers its own questions, then we know the answer is correct. Why? Because the Bible is a unified whole, and God never contradicts himself. In other words, the great interpreter of scripture is scripture. The Bible is unified in its message. Although it sometimes presents us with paradox, it never confounds us with contradiction. You know, some of the Puritan thinkers talked about you use a diamond to cut a diamond, right? And you need that hard substance of diamond to cut the quality and the hardness of the diamond. You need scripture to interpret scripture. One of the tools for helping yourself do that, sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm needing assistance here. <laughs> One of the tools for helping you do that are the cross-references uh, that you have if you have a study Bible. Right, sometimes we ignore those notes in the margin, right? Those cross-references are other verses that are there that have the same word or phrase that is in the verse we're looking at, or maybe has a similar theme. Your study Bible will have its own system. I've just recently, through this class, learned my study Bible's uh, cross-reference system. Right? If it's in brackets in mine, it means there's a similar theme in the passage that appears in the brackets. Uh, sometimes it says, as cited in, and then it means that this verse is either quoted in another part of scripture that they're referring to in the margin, or quotes from another part of scripture. It's a great tool to being able to compare scripture to scripture as you're looking to interpret the, the Bible. So we wanna let scripture interpret scripture. The third principle, is coming, I think, there it is. <laughs> Never base convictions 
on an obscure passage of scripture. We want to be careful about that. There are some passages that are hard to understand. Um, a good explanation for that is we are human. And the Bible says that now we see in a mirror dimly, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 12. There will always be Bible passages which sincere believers, even those who hold to a literal interpretation of scripture, will not arrive in complete agreement on. Um, I have one example, and if you don't like my example, you can blame me. This is not from any source that I used. But I've been recently teaching our um, middle schoolers uh, on Genesis and came across this passage that's kind of a difficult passage. Genesis chapter 6. You may be familiar with it. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. It talks about uh, the pre-flood conditions that affirmed how deeply rooted humanity was in sin and led to God's decision to judge the world, judge humanity with a flood. And we have this, these verses here. It said, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the son of, sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they were born, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It goes on from there. That passage is an obscure passage. It's really hard to know what's going on there, right? Some interpreters have said that these are fallen angels, the sons of God, that see that the daughters of man were attractive and that they had children with the daughters of men. And so you have this giant, this race of giants on the earth that's the result of that. Um, some people have said this is the godly line of Seth, these sons of God, and that they saw that the daughters of man, this is the ungodly line of Cain, were attractive, that there was an intermarrying of these lines, and that that is what is, is concerning God here, right, and causing him to regret this and to add to the evil. There are other interpretations. This is a tough passage, right? Uh, and we need to be careful not to build our theology of what angels are and what angels can do off of this passage, right? We don't want to come to any convictions, um, but we want to be careful to compare Scripture with Scripture. A later Scripture, uh, Mark chapter 12, 25, does tell us, Jesus says that the angels in heaven are not like us humans on earth and that they are not given to marriage and that they do not reproduce, right? So you really have to be careful with these things. So watch out. There are sometimes paradoxes. There is a correct interpretation to this passage. This is God's word, right? One thing that I really appreciate about the writers who are writing about interpretation is there's only one correct interpretation to any passage of scripture. We may disagree about what it is, but the, this is God's word. There, this is God's truth. There may be many different applications of it, but there is one correct interpretation. We need to strive at the best and the most accurate interpretation we can. So be careful of those obscure passages. Don't base too much on them. Hold those lightly and really compare scripture to scripture. The fourth principle is uh, take the literal meaning as you read scripture, the face value, that's the, other, the, the next blank, literal meaning. 
or face value unless the author or genre indicate otherwise. You know, you come to a passage um, such as the dry bone passage uh, in Ezekiel, right? Or some passages in Revelation. And those are clearly uh, written as prophecy or eschatological writing form. And there's a lot of symbolism there, right? Um, we have Jesus saying in John chapter 2, verse 18, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. But the author of John tells us very shortly after that that he wasn't referring literally to the temple. He was referring to his body, right? So scripture is careful to prepare us for what we should take literally, what we should take as symbolism. This is a problem, um, and it's largely been uh, corrected over time, but there, there have been movements in history where, where there's a lot of allegorizing of the Bible, right? Spiritualizing of things that maybe are not plainly there, right? We have to be careful about that. Charles Ryrie reasons, if God be the originator of language, and if the chief purpose of originating it was to convey his message to humanity, then it must follow that he, being all-wise and all-loving, originated sufficient language to convey all that was in his heart to tell mankind. Furthermore, it must also follow that he would use language and expect people to understand it in its literal, normal, and plain sense. The scriptures, then, cannot be regarded as an illustration of some special use of language so that the, in the interpretation of these scriptures, some deeper meaning of the words must be sought. We want to normally operate in the mode of plain, common sense interpretation, literal interpretation, unless there's a reason from the genre, it's poetry, it's prophecy, that would indicate maybe we ought to take that differently, right? Uh, the next principle, look for the main message of the passage, the main message. We're going to use context for that and purpose for that. We want to look at the linking words and see what thoughts are connected, what threads are being woven together there. Look at summation words. What are some repeated phrases or ideas, right? What are the contrasts there? We want to look at these things to really pull them together and see what seems to be the main message that the author is communicating. The uh, sixth principle, study the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New Testament. Study the Old Testament in light of Jesus and the New Testament. It's been said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Right? So we want to be able to see in the Old Testament some things that are pointing to Jesus because this is the story of the Bible. It's the, it is his story, right? So one thing to ask is where in the timeline, let me get back to clicking here, where in the timeline of redemptive history, sorry, I should just let Brian keep doing what he's doing. <laughs> Where in the timeline of redemptive history does this passage that I'm reading in the Old Testament happen, right? We know that the big story of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and that most of the Bible is about redemption, revealing that over a long period of writings and of time in various forms and giving us more detail about that over the course of the story of the scriptures. 
So where does that, where does our passage fall in there? There are multiple covenants that God made with his people, various people, and it's important to understand which covenants would have bearing on our passage as we're reading those as well. And the covenants point to Jesus as well. So where in the timeline of redemptive history does my passage fall? Second thing, how does it point to Jesus? How does it point to Jesus? Even going back to Genesis 3, 15, we have the first expression of the gospel, the first reference, although it's, it's something that we don't understand completely at that point in the scriptures, unless we can look later, that this is about Jesus, right? The son of the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of this, the uh, seed of the serpent. So we want to look at these passages. How does this passage point to Jesus? There is a neat children's storybook, pretty popular one, I guess, Jesus Storybook Bible. And one of the principles of this is every page of Scripture whispers his name. Every page of Scripture whispers the name of Jesus. And uh, I think that's a, a great principle, right? We can apply that to our interpretation. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, 39, search the Scriptures. They testified me, right? As he was facing challenges from the Jews. We know how he walked the road to Emmaus with those disciples, and he went through the scripture, showing in the Old Testament how the scriptures were fulfilled by him. The third principle under this studying the Old Testament in light of the New is how is this passage foundational for an understanding of New Testament Christianity? There are some things that help us to understand how New Testament Christianity is different from what we had in the Old Testament as well as maybe a foreshadowing of something that would go on there. And the last principle or last filter here, which we should use when we interpret, is to adopt the New Testament's attitude towards the Old Testament passage. We want to consider how is this passage a fulfillment of something promised in the Old Testament? The Davidic covenant. David is told that there would be someone from his line, a, a king from his line, who would sit on his throne forever. Right? That is a reference to Christ. And uh, when we read of the millennial kingdom, we see that is a fulfillment of that covenant, that promise that God made. There are many examples like that in Scripture. Secondly, how is this New Testament, how is the New Testament idea different from or similar to an Old Testament teaching? All right, that's a good thing to study. And finally, in what way does this New Testament passage clarify, unveil, fulfill, or amplify something from the Old Testament? And many teachings from the Old Testament that are quoted by our Savior and explained and amplified. You think of his teaching on the Ten Commandments, right? On the law that God gave and how he revert, re revealed that murder actually is in our, in our heart when we hate our brother, right? And he just teaches it so much with such greater authority and insight and truth. Um, so the New Testament will often interpret the Old Testament for us. The book of Hebrews uh, does this over and over again, telling us how we ought to take those Old Testament scriptures, how we ought to interpret them. So that's another great illustration of scripture interpreting scripture for us. All right, so hopefully we got all the blanks and you have some principles there that will help you be able to apply to your own study. Let Pastor Kyle come up now and lead us in uh, some study of Mark. Okay. 
Again, I want to invite you, if you did not get a handout and or a copy of the scriptural journal, um, there's some a few extras at the table in the back, so as we do this, feel free to grab one. We want to do some work around the table tonight, and so um, we're going to do the majority of the work that we're going to do together as a table is practice from last week, a lot of the principles of observation. What do we see in the text? And um, I was talking with uh, Jerry Zoller Sunday, this is something he's very passionate about and well-trained in as well, and he gave this illustration that I thought was very helpful. I told him I'd use it and steal it, but give him credit. Um, a lot of the teaching that we have when we gather together, which is an essential part of being a community of believers, would be the preaching and the teaching of someone who has done a lot of the observation, interpretive, and application work, and they are like the miner who goes into the mine, and they dig for the jewels, and they do all the hard work, but then they're also like the jeweler who gets the finished product, and they're putting it on display, so as a congregation, it's like as if we're walking into the jewelry store, and we're seeing the result of the work of the miner and the polisher and the one who sets it as a beautiful piece of jewelry, and so we are most of the time seeing the finished product. And what we want to, again, help you to do in our studies on Wednesday nights that hopefully you can apply to your personal study is that we all start doing the work of the miners. We all get in that cart together and go down. And so that's what we're going to do tonight around the tables is we're going to go right to the word. And um, a helpful thing for us to do is just try to read it as if you've never read it before. Keep within the Mark 1 verses 9 to 13. And as we go through and answer the majority of the questions, just stay there. But then some of the interpretation work is going to come when we get to maybe some of the why questions near the end. Why would Mark be sharing this information? Why is this important in his gospel? And then what parts might need further study? As you start to see, oh, maybe that's a connection to the Old Testament. Or this is Jesus fulfilling something in his life. And it connects to something prior and starting to see some of those cross-references and things. And then I would love for, maybe just around the table, you can come to up with a summary sentence of this passage um, for us to share together. So I want to allow us to dive right into that. That clock is a little fast, so it's technically 21, 721. So I'd like to give us about 15 minutes or so, and then I'll come back and uh, try to walk through those things, maybe get some... Um, um, some back and forth with you, um, and then I do want to do some application work as well. I want to, I've done some of that, I want to be able to share that with you so we can leave with some application in our baskets as well. All right, we'll try to bring everything back together so you can exchange your papers with another table and put your name down as the grader. Okay. All right, let's walk. Let's walk through this, and hopefully this is like, I want to do this more. That's exactly the purpose, that uh, you get your appetite wet uh, for studying the Word, and you want to take this home and finish it and, and do more. Um, and so uh, let's jump into and see if we have a lot of similar answers as well. I'm going to try to lead through this. I may ask for a little interaction as well. Um, but let's look at the first question, who? Who are the characters in this short passage? And there's quite a few. Um, you have Jesus, and you have John doing the baptizing. You have the Father, God the Father speaking, and the Holy Spirit coming down. 
You have Satan in this passage. You have angels. And I think I heard a little bit of, what about the wild animals? Yeah. I, I put them in there too. You know, that's... Uh, Every word is profitable, and uh, I actually think that's a really cool part that maybe we can get to. If not, write that down further study. The wild animals. What is that referring to? What is, what's the purpose of that statement? So what action is taking place? And you start trying to look for the verbs, and uh, maybe you can even include the who and the what action, who's doing what, and to whom. And so as we start, we have Jesus, and he is coming out to John the Baptist. He's coming from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is where even a map would be helpful of a study Bible. You just Google, you know, map of Jesus' day or anything like that, and they'll pop up on your images. And so you can kind of see where Jesus is coming from, who he's going to. So Jesus is coming out to John the Baptist. And then we have John baptizing Jesus. We have what other action? The heavens are opening up. Big action there. We have the Spirit descending upon Jesus. We have by inference that the one who is speaking is God the Father. He's saying, this is my Son. And so we have God the Father speaking. We have the Spirit again taking action and the one driving Jesus back into the wilderness. And we have Satan doing the tempting of Jesus. We have the angels that are ministering to Jesus during the testing. So again, as is typical of Mark, you have an action-packed little section, a lot of action going on and what's taking place. And then again, where and when is this taking place? Again, this is where having a map out would be helpful as well. Jesus is coming from Nazareth. That's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And he is coming to the wilderness, which most places would put southeast of Jerusalem. So Jesus coming from Nazareth, going to the wilderness. And scholars will place it because other cross-references will say, give us the age of Jesus around the age of 30. And so this would be taking place around 80, 28 or 80, 29, um, Jesus in his early 30s. Now, the baptism of John, um, a lot of scholars will place this on or on the Bethany or Bathoraba. It's on the other side of the Jordan is, is how it's described. And then we have the wilderness temptation, which Jesus was baptized here. And then most scholars will place the wilderness temptation south of Bethany. So he gets baptized and moves south into the wilderness. Now, why is Mark writing this? So asking the big question, what's the main message that Mark is attempting to portray when he writes this action-packed narrative of Jesus' baptism and temptation? Obviously, the baptism of Jesus is an important moment in his life and ministry, and so we want to be able to figure out why it was important. And some of this is going to move into the um, interpretation, and you're going to want to cross-reference and look at other places, other descriptions of Jesus' baptism to try to fill in some of these blanks. But from the text itself... Um, I pulled out a few things here, and hopefully you're able to as well. One of the things this did, if you went back a few verses to the beginning of this chapter, remember the people of Israel were coming out to be baptized, that outward sign of repentance. 
So Jesus, in doing this, is identifying himself with his people. Jesus is identifying himself with Israel. That's very important. The events of his baptism signify. So what we read in the text gives us a signal that something different is happening, right? No other person, after they were baptized, had the heavens open up and God the Father speak and the Spirit visibly descend upon them. And so we have the Father giving his approval to the Son in the sight of John and others who may have been there. We have the identity of Jesus as the Son of God explicitly given in this text. You are my beloved Son. Why is that important? Once again, the thesis statement of, John, of Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this is another obvious um, marker that Jesus is exactly that. And this baptism displays that. I want you to write down a, a lot of other texts that will help you study out his baptism. So this is more of that interpretation and application. Some of these are the other um, explanations of the baptism in the other gospels. Others are other um, writings in the scripture that talk about the baptism of Jesus Christ. So write down Mark 10, 39. And if you don't get all these, find me. I'll give them to you afterward. Matthew 3, verse 15. Luke 3, 21. Again, here's your, this is your homework. John 1, 29 to 34. John 1, 29 to 34. And even some of the epistles talk about the baptism of Jesus. Galatians 3, 23 to 29. And not necessarily the act of the baptism of Jesus, but how it was different. So Galatians 3, 23 to 29. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And then Acts 19, 1 to 7. And also Acts 18, verse 25. If you didn't get all that, come find me. I'll give those to you. So we have the baptism. How about the temptation of Jesus? Why was Mark writing about the temptation of Jesus? Well, it was spirit-led. It shows us the importance of the work of the spirit in Jesus' human nature. And then obviously that should ring a bell. Okay, the work of the spirit in our lives has to be that important as well. He was in a stark wilderness. The wild animals. He was not surrounded by placid animals, but wild animals, as if you were be driven into the wilderness in New Hampshire. Is there a significance to the 40 days? Is there a connection there? Could be symbolic of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, contrasting their failures to Jesus's, I'll use the word success, of glorifying God and resisting temptation. Also an interesting, a cross-reference, when Jesus quotes scripture in response to Satan, we see that in Luke chapter 4, all of his quotes were from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. What's significant about that? Well, Deuteronomy 6 to 8 was when Israel was called to be faithful in the wilderness. So there's this connection to Jesus' success in contrast to Israel's failure why else? And I'll get to this next section in the application. Some more co context of the temptation of Jesus would be Matthew 4, Luke 4, and then Hebrews chapter 2, which I hope to close with. 
So that's the temptation of Jesus, and there's more you can do. And then for your own sake, what needs further study? I'll let you do that. What else do you want to study out in the passage? For me, the theme of the wilderness is something that I want to study out. The desert. Maybe the presence of the Trinity at the baptism. What is that helping establish and teach? And then write your summary sentence. Right, let me jump into our application as we close. All of, as it was already spoken, all of the Old Testament in one way points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Adam, created for a purpose to glorify God and spread his fame through all the earth. He failed. He devalued the character of God. His sin was an onslaught of God's character, that God wasn't to be trusted. He wasn't really good. The fact that he gave this prohibition to Adam and to Eve. So he failed. Noah failed. Abraham, Moses, David, the people of Israel, all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings, ultimately failed to do what Jesus has come to perfectly do. And that is to perfectly display the glory of God through his obedience to the Father. So Jesus came to do what we and no other human before or after us could ever do. So when he was baptized and was tempted, he identified himself with man and fulfilled in one way what Adam could never do. In the wilderness, surrounded by not placid animals like when the earth was created, but surrounded by wild animals and tempted by Satan, having no food or drink for 40 days, Adam, in the perfect environment, couldn't obey. Jesus, in an obviously less than perfect environment, fulfilled God's plan for his life. He entered into a wilderness that was marred by Adam's sin. Psalm 91, that is a passage that Satan quotes in Luke 4 when he's tempting Jesus to jump off the highest point because, well, God has given his angels to watch over you. But if you read that, Psalm 91, 11 through 13, this is what Satan, and again, this is, a very, this is why this is important. Satan can use scripture for his own devices. And we dare not be, be um, guilty of that, but really truly see the scriptures, how it was intended to be read and applied. So this is what Satan quotes. For he will commend his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And very interesting in verse 13, right after that, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the wild animals. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. So that's something, just an interesting connect there. So back to Christ, baptism, temptation. He identified and fulfilled also not only what Adam couldn't do, but Israel failed to do. Again, why his baptism identifies him with God's people that were already coming out to be baptized. Israel, in the wilderness, fell into doubt and into idolatry. Jesus resisted temptation passed that test so that he could be something for us that Adam and Israel could never be. So what's the result? I want to read this, and if you want to turn here, if you have your other copy of the scripture, I'll just mark it. Hebrews. Let me close with this. Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Maybe if you just want to write this down. It reads like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, this is Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, 
Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, again, clue, that's a big word, therefore. Okay, so why is it therefore? Pointing back to something else, what we just read Why did Jesus have to become man and take on flesh? He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, why did he need to be tempted? When he, because he te- was suffered when tempted, now, what does that mean for us? He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus went through temptation. He identified with man. He became man so that he could be a sympathetic high priest who intercedes for us, helps us, can empathize with us, and then we're called to carry on that mission to others. We need to enter into the pain and suffering of others, displaying Jesus' love to one another. But because Jesus identified through his baptism and his temptation with man, and yet never failed, we, those of us who are in Christ, have someone to turn to in times of pain and suffering, temptation, loss. Jesus knows. Jesus understands. Jesus loves to intercede for us before the Father's throne of grace. So we need to rest in Jesus, and we also need to run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and may we continue to be faithful in our study of it, our observing of it, our interpreting of it, our application of it. And thank you that you give us your spirit to aid us in that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.